Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're seeing scripture tell us that every Bible prophecy should point us to Jesus in some way. The Old Testament is full of prophecy, much of which we have seen realized in the New Testament. Prophecy is the word of God given to his people. There is some conjecture about some Old Testament prophecy. What happens when we read prophecy and get a distorted perspective of what it means? There are several principles for reading and understanding scripture to make sure that we get it right. Dr. Corbett is looking at the restoration of Israel tonight to explore some of these principles. Let's join him now. Many people see the Old Testament as uh, somewhat irrelevant today. They see that it belongs to a bygone era and it bears no relevance for us today. I, I want to show you why I disagree with that statement and show you how we can understand that the Old Testament is written for us, uh, for our benefit, and so that uh, we can grow in Christ in a way that we better reflect who Christ is. So it's sometimes passages like what we're about to look at in Ezekiel where it's going to seem almost cryptic. It's like, what? Uh, what's going on here? And so this passage is about the restoration of Israel. And even saying that, you might think, restoration of Israel, where'd that come from? Well, I remind you that Ezekiel is 25 years of age. We know that because he tells us. And, and at 25, he, he was due to be ordained a priest. Now, being a priest may not be your ambition, but it was his. And associated with being ordained a priest, you, you kind of get to stand up in front of everyone and you get white robes put on you and you get a sash and, and you get a, a special turban and, and you get to walk around wearing this stuff and people go, oh, it's a priest. There's a little bit of respect. Remember the first time I got a letter addressed to me, an envelope addressed to me, and I had... P.S. in front of my name. I almost framed it. <laughs> Ezekiel missed out on that because what happened was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and took away the cream of the crop. He took away the intellectuals, the elite, the academics, the nobles, the ones who had been trained in the arts and the sciences, and he took them back to Babylon to further his kingdom. And among that group were... The priests, many of the priests, including Ezekiel, who hadn't yet been ordained. And so here, the opening scenes of Ezekiel, he's north of Babylon, just next to some canal. And you can't even find a Bible map that tells us where this canal is. It was so insignificant. And he's there with a group of his countrymen. And his countrymen are, are really, if, if I can summarize what, what's going on here, his countrymen are there and they're going, any minute now, God is going to deliver us and put us back into our land. Because we're the chosen ones. And so Psalm 137 is a song that says, we're getting out of here real soon. God's going to deliver us. We are the people of God. You're the filthy, pagan, dirty, disgusting Babylonians who deserve the wrath of God. Yeah. That's Psalm 137, bit of license, I must admit. But that's essentially it. So here's Ezekiel, while they're singing that Boney M song, he's there and suddenly he sees something. And you remember what he saw. He, suddenly he sees, and, and this does require sound effects, he sees 
four creatures in wheels. Well, he calls them wheels, but they're really, they're like energy fields. And inside the energy field was another energy field, and he doesn't know how to describe it. Here we are two and a half thousand years ago. We're, we're 600 BC, and he's going, what is that? That looks like a wheel in a wheel. How do you have a wheel in a wheel and as he's pondering this the sound effects would have been like this because i saw i saw gravity and sandra bullock had that happening anyway anyway so that's how it would have sounded and as he's there he sees these creatures called cherubs not the cute little guys with the padded bottoms shooting little bow and arrows on the cards a real cherub in our language is somewhere around six meters tall. And they are the defenders of God's presence. These are the heavenly secret service, except they actually do their job. And <laughs> Roger would appreciate that the secret service director got sacked, although I think the official word was invited to resign. And these cherub, they don't, they don't let people in to the boundary that shouldn't be there and there they are guarding the presence of god and ezekiel sees them and it is the scariest thing he's ever seen and while this is all happening he begins to hear god and this is one of the things he hears god say if you come with me if you're in chapter 20 of ezekiel we go down to verse 33 and it's and it says this as i live declares the lord god surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Whenever you read that expression in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a poetic statement of God is going to intervene with an outstretched arm. So when you read the psalmists cry out to God with this strange expression, oh God, stretch out your arm. Like, don't think it's the yawn. Oh, it's It's... Stretch, it's stretching out to, it's a picture of God intervening. So this is what's happening here. And with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. Verse 34. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Now here's the deal. If you don't know anything about what I've just said, and you are reading that, you are going to hear literally hundreds, and I'm being conservative because it's probably more likely thousands of preachers, teachers, entire organizations, and I am not kidding, entire organizations that are built to help Jews today to return to the land of Israel based on those two verses. You'll see the same sort of thing if you have a look in verse 41. God says, I will restore you to the land. Remember Psalm 137, what they were singing? God's going to restore us to the land. Well, here God says, I am going to restore you to the land. And we read in chapter 36, which we're not going to look at, just for time, verses 11, 24, and verse 38, where God says the same thing. I'm going to restore you to the land I promised you. What's interesting in chapter 36, God says why he's going to do it. And he says, not because you've turned back to me, but because of the fact I've removed you from the land, people are saying, I couldn't keep you in it. 
So not for your sake, but for mine, I'm going to do it. He says in chapter 36. And then in chapter 37, which we will look at in a moment, in verse 14, he says the same thing. Just to note also in chapter 37, which we'll look at in a moment, it mirrors this. Ezekiel prophesies that not only will God restore them to the land, he will reestablish the covenant with them, which Jeremiah has said they've broken. And it says in chapter 37, verse 26, that God will rebuild the temple. Because while Ezekiel's in Babylon, the temple gets demolished by the Babylonians. I want to show you one of the thousands of video clips that are on the internet that actually cite these passages. So let's have a look at this. Today, the Jews can celebrate their return to the land that their God had promised them. And what a land they've made of it. The dry, dead bones of the past sprang to life. Thousands upon thousands of trees were planted. Desert was turned into orchards. The modern Israelis have made themselves worthy of an ancient promise, but not without bloodshed. The Jewish people as a nation began when the patriarch Abraham obeyed his God's command. Leave your country and go to the land I will show you. This is the land his God promised him, a crossroads between Asia and Europe, at the heart of where civilization began, a land of wild hills and salt-encrusted shores. Geographically, the ancient Jews were wedged in between the superpowers of Egypt and Assyria and surrounded by peoples determined to drive them out of the land they believed God had assigned to them. Then, as now, the Promised Land was plagued by constant warfare. In time, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Its ten tribes are lost to history. Later, the southern kingdom of Judah was overwhelmed by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar and its people carried off to Babylon in chains. When the Persians crushed Babylon, Abraham's descendants were free to go back to the Promised Land. Then the Promised Land was occupied by Rome. Rome built cities, Rome built baths, Rome built amphitheaters, and Rome brought in her gods. The Roman yoke had become more than Jews could bear. They revolted, and it was a rebellion that took mighty Rome almost four years to crush. Now the wrath of Rome came down upon Israel in full fury. There was an explosion of fleeing Jews that reached to every known part of the globe. What are we seeing in Ezekiel's prophecies? He's seeing, we're seeing that he says Israel or Judah, the two southern tribes, would be restored to their land and they would be identified as Israel. So we see that in this passage. We see also in the scriptures that I've mentioned that God says that he would forgive Israel. So we see that there would be national repentance and a turning to him. We see also that Ezekiel says in chapter 36, and we'll see in a moment in 37, that God says he would pour out his spirit on them. The Holy Spirit would bring regeneration. That means to take what is dead spiritually and bring it to life. 
It would be by the Spirit. This is what Ezekiel said would happen. And then to sum it all up, we come from chapters 20 right through to chapter 36. And we come into chapter 37. So if you've got your Bible there, just go to chapter 37. And let's have a look at this. This is a very famous passage in Ezekiel. It says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of dry bones. It is as if they've been taken out of their land and they're now dead as a nation. And Ezekiel looks at them as if they are now a valley of dry human bones. And God says, can these bones now live? And Ezekiel's answer is brilliant. Oh, Lord, only you know. (laughs) Great answer. And then he watches and he sees flesh restored, breath coming back in and arising and standing with swords strapped, shields buckled, a mighty army. And God says, that's what I'm going to do to my people. Wow. So how do we understand these passages? And and I've just skimmed over these 17 chapters, but you've got the idea. Futurists, these are people who see that Ezekiel's prophecy is much into the future. They see that the fulfillment of these prophecies began in 1948. They began in 1948 and we are living out the fulfillment of these now. We are seeing them fulfilled in our day. That's one way of looking at it. In other words, when Ezekiel was prophesying, he was prophesying about events that we today are witnessing. That's one way of looking at it. Here's the second way of looking at it. People who take the Bible in a liberal fashion, that is, they look for allegory or just what's the hidden message in the text they're not looking for a wooden literal interpretation of it they simply take the allegory and for them this is metaphorical language of how god can heal a human soul nothing about the nation of israel essentially and then thirdly there's these people called preterists the latin word Preta or preta means examine the past. And it works like this. Before you assume that a Bible prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, check history. Just check history to see if it has already been fulfilled. So a preterist is somebody who says, well, hang on a minute. Didn't Ezekiel give a time frame for these prophecies? Didn't he link it in with Jeremiah's time frame? Jeremiah, by the way, said that they would be out of their land for 70 years, then they would be restored. And the futurist has to say, yes, but the, the 69 years ticked along and then God put, pressed pause on the 70th year. And it's been on pause for 2,000 years. Now he's unpaused it and it's happening almost before our eyes. The preterist says, there's no reason to do that to scripture the preterist says i can actually show you that everything jeremiah said and ezekiel said happened exactly when they said it would happen i'm a preterist by the way so i'm giving you perhaps 
a futurist might give you a better picture of what they're on about than I've done them justice. I admit that. But I want you to understand a couple of principles about this. How should we understand Bible prophecy generally? How should we do it? And how should we understand these prophecies given to Israel? There are some general principles for how you read the Bible, and they include this. Number one, all Scripture has an intended meaning. It's, I hear people say this, well, you're entitled to your interpretation. And I go, no, you're not. Your interpretation does not make it so. Your interpretation could be wrong. And to say, well, everyone's entitled to their interpretation is to say there is no truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. So, for example, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear child, be with child. The virgin shall give birth to a child. What did he intend for us to mean? Now, I've heard people say this, that he was talking about his wife who in nine months gave birth. Really, is it, he intended that. That's, that was his intention. That's what he meant. Here's the problem with that interpretation. Matthew chapter 1 quotes Isaiah 7 and says the birth of Jesus Christ by the Virgin Mary was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Notice the word the. If you're into English, the actually means something. Not a interpretation or an interpretation. It was the fulfillment of it. In other words, when God said this would happen, it's, it's almost as if God had something in mind. Not, well, we'll just throw this vaguely out there and just see how many different ways we can apply this. That's not how our God speaks. So number one is intention. It leads to one correct interpretation. By the way, I think we sometimes confuse the word interpretation for the word application. You and I can both look at a, a text. In fact, I, I can preach a sermon and, and I can have someone come up and say, that was really helpful. You know, the way you helped me to understand how I should relate to my wife was really helpful. And I'm thinking, I didn't even mention the word wife. Didn't even mention the word marriage. Didn't even talk about anything you just said I talked about. And I'll just smile and go, that's awesome. On the inside, I'm confused, but on the outside, I'm looking like I normally look suave, wise, <laughs> under control, modest. Thank you. I left that one out. Thank you. I'll write that one in for next time. Um, here's the second thing we should do with Scripture is understand the principle that Scripture illuminates Scripture. It, it goes like this. You might read something in Scripture and go, what is that all about? And I guarantee you there will be another scripture which will shed light on that scripture that will help you to answer the question, what's that all about? So, for example, I do not permit a woman to speak in church. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> but if you just take that verse and go, that doesn't sound right. And normally it's women who point this out, by the way. What you'll find is that there are other scriptures that, that talk about let all things be done in order. 
it, it says things like this. If a woman prophesies in church, it says when a Pr- Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside, Priscilla showed him more truth about Christ. And you think, hang on a minute, this is a woman preaching and teaching. This is, hang on, when a woman prophesies, they're, they're not keeping quiet. What's going on here? And you realize it's talking about not the fact that it's women, but the fact that there are a group of people who are disrupting the service. Hang on, come on, you women, don't do that. Keep silent. Don't disrupt the meeting. And that's the context. See, you find other scriptures that clarify scriptures. That's the second principle. Third principle is how did the original audience understand it? So when Jesus said something about marriage, here I am talking about marriage, Matthew 19, when he said it's, it's best for a man not to marry than to marry and then divorce. And the disciples said to him, what? You think mar- like the disciples said to him, you think marriage is that important? And Jesus said, yeah, and not everyone's going to get it. They understood what Jesus was saying as a wow moment. Now that should be a clue as to what they heard. It should be a clue as to what Jesus was saying. So the original audience helps. Fourthly, historical context. What are the events going on? So, for example, if I said to you that Rome embarked on a war against Christians from 60, um, where are we, 64 AD, 64 AD, and it stopped in 68 AD when Nero died. It was exactly three and a half years. Does that, does that little bit of historical knowledge that there was three and a half years of murderous rampage against the church in the first century, does that change the way you read anything in the New Testament? When you read things like this, there will be a time of great tribulation that comes on the church for 1,260 days, which is, by the way, three and a half years. If you don't know what actually happened in the first century, it's very difficult to understand, and you're actually left open to to being left behind in your thinking and assuming that it's yet to come. What's the therefore? I've just given you four guiding principles. Can I just tell you, God did restore Israel to the land. He did it. You ever read Esther? You, you read, you'll read in Esther, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, of the war of Gog and Magog. That is Esther. You ever read Ezra, Nehemiah? It talks about Israel coming back to the land. You read Ezra, Nehemiah, not only did they come back to the land... They reinstituted the covenant with God, exactly like Ezekiel said. And they rebuilt the temple, exactly like Ezekiel said. And that's what Ezekiel was talking about. And it happened in the time frame that he was talking about. So what's the therefore for us today? What do we do with this? I want you to understand that all Bible prophecy should help us to understand Jesus more. It should help us to see Jesus Am I just making that up? I don't think so. Revelation 19 verse 10 says this. This is John, the writer of Revelation, who meets someone who's like an angelic person, but he's, he's, he doesn't know if it's an angel or who, whoever it is. And he says this, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He said to me, You must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Note this, worship God. That's just by the way. You don't worship a statue, an idol, a dead saint, another person. 
you only worship God. Sorry, Pope Francis, you're wrong. You only worship God. And worship is prayer, praise, adoration. We haven't finished. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing scripture tell us that every Bible prophecy should point us to Jesus in some way. We should see Jesus in some way. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. And it's in the context of millions upon millions of our brothers and sisters who disagree with us. They think the focus of prophecy is Israel. And I don't think the Bible teaches that. The focus of prophecy is Jesus and what he's done. And the difference is when a whole bunch of Palestinians get bombed and killed, rather than clap and rejoice and go, yay, Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. We're one day closer to Jesus coming back. We lower our head and sigh and go, precious human lives have been needlessly wasted. These are not Palestinians. These are human beings. Father, help us to take the love of God to people who are not like us. Help us to see Jesus, who is the love of God, in each of these Bible prophecies. Help us, Jesus, we pray, to share your love with others. Help us, Jesus, we pray, to live our lives with the confidence that we may not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And we want to worship you. We want to follow you, surrender our lives to you, and see you glorified. Have your way in us. Now, if you're here today, you're listening to me right now, and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never given your life to Christ. I invite you. In fact, if I could be stronger, I would, I would plead with you, please. You are not guaranteed your next heartbeat, let alone your next tomorrow. Look to the Savior. Listen to his invitation. Come unto me. Come unto me and be saved. Surrender your life. Allow him to transform your soul. And you can start your journey as a follower of Christ, a Christian. You're one prayer away from peace with God. A prayer that says, oh God, I come to you now. I ask you to forgive me for the life that I've lived. Wash me clean and help me to start again. Fill me with your spirit. I want to walk with you. I ask. Amen. The Restoration of Israel, a prophecy that has been a source of some contention. Some helpful principles there, though, to help us understand scripture. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, The Restoration of Israel, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. 
Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.